LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a Curriculum Development Specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training provides mobile training to both the national and international emergency response community. Before we get started with today's episode, we want to let our listeners know that we will be talking about trauma in the responder community with very brief mentioning of suicide, so listener discretion is advised. On last week's episode, we talked with Roy Bethke and Dr. Carolyn Corsi about the importance of normalizing trauma in responder professions. This week, we'll continue our conversation with Roy and Carolyn as we dive deeper into the discussion on trauma and the importance of social support networks. To start us off, why is it so important that responders have a social support system in the wake of a crisis that may cause them to feel the effects of a traumatic event? I'll go back to the the earlier conversations about the downsides of not having one. Historically, we know the impact uh, in every way and and toll in human life and and lost productivity and, and all the bad things that happen when we don't have those support mechanisms in place. And and there are a lot of them available now. The challenge again becomes that in this disconnected world, it's just not what we're used to. And and, uh, I speak a lot around the country around the idea of courageous leadership, right? We already have a a difficult time uh, when it comes to suggesting people be accountable. Like, you know, somebody's had one too many drinks three nights in a row or one more, not that it's too many, but hey, maybe somebody asking what's going on, are you okay? And, and kind of digging into that and having these really courageous conversations. That's now become even harder to do because we're no longer connected face-to-face in our, our normal environment. So the norms have changed. How do we then um, hold not only ourselves accountable, because that's one part of the equation, but how do we provide support and resources? Uh, and I would love to pick Carolyn's brain on that uh, and to get some ideas on where we're going. You know, it really is true that there there's so much information out there, and sometimes it's difficult to to know what what are the really appropriate resources for me or my group. And I think that there are are leaders within every group that have suggestions and ideas. And because I have so much respect for the various disciplines, even within the, as we're talking about, the broad definition of responders, I think being able to go not just to the EAP, because I know that there are not enough counselors, just like there are not enough EMS people to respond to everyone. So I think EAP can be a resource, but I think more practical approaches would be to ask within the groups um, what other people are reading, what groups they're on, are are they on any chat groups? Um, I think to send people to like a broad resource list can be very disappointing for people and people can get lost and there's so much negativity out there. So I tend to think that to some extent it's group specific and, and I do think that there are experts uh, within every organization that know. So, for example, I think of in the military groups that I've worked with, the chaplain in many cases is one of their most valuable resources because there's a, 
there is a, they're not wearing the clinical mindset that sometimes makes people feel like, well, if they're talking to me, maybe I'm sick kind of thing, which happens to some of us counselors when we're assisting. But on the other hand, the, the practical applied resources, um, I think, are, are ones that particularly in the EMS community, people are more comfortable with. And, and so I would, I would tend to say, look within the leadership, look within the group to see what other people are finding helpful. As a mental health professional, I have all sorts of resources, but they may not or they might be helpful. And um, I'll be glad at the end of the podcast to give you some of the ones, Ashley, that I think for people that are non-clinical, they might find really helpful. And to Carolyn's point, and I appreciate your, your comment about, you know, Outsiders have difficulty getting into uh, our disciplines, the traditional first responder disciplines. And, and, and frankly, these are really trust-based relationships if they're going to be effective. So sending me to an outsider uh, for counseling or help is going to be a much harder sell than, than anything else. Uh, you know, the number of challenges that we have, and, and if we think about, again, historically, the traditional first responder uh, communities or disciplines, and I think in most of the expanded ones as well, we're kind of self-isolating professions. At the end of the day, I know when I got into policing in the 1980s, I had lots of friends who weren't cops. Um, play that out uh, much longer down downstream in life. And there was a time where the only people I hung out with were cops because they were the only people that understood what I was going through and how to deal with it. And, and you know, the, the old joke about the cop chair, you come home, sit down in the cop chair after a long day, it doesn't matter what else is going on. You're staring at the TV and you're completely disconnected that is so unhealthy for us. So as we kind of build through what, what, how do we overcome some of these challenges, I think we have to have a conversation about vulnerability. Um, I think it's really easy to close ourselves down and vulnerability is a pretty scary word uh, coming out of a cop's mouth for sure. Um, but you know, we, we can't be physically vulnerable. That's not an option for us, especially in police and we're bulletproof vests. We have lots of different training. The, the sadness I think is that we also equate that inability, that not desire for physical vulnerability to not be emotionally vulnerable. Uh, and that's a really dangerous spot for us uh, to be in. And I know uh, Dr. Brene Brown down at the University of Houston, some of her work uh, in the book, Daring Greatly, talks a lot about vulnerability being our truest measure of courage. Uh, and I think about that, right? People, especially from a leadership perspective, people want to know who I really am, not, not the fake me. And the same is true for our, our significant others. The same is true for people that we care for. And part of reaching out and helping someone isn't, I think, and, and this would be an interesting conversation, I think, Carolyn, from, from the idea, I think we talked about being alone uh, and living alone and the impact that that has, but um, we isolate ourselves and we don't wanna be vulnerable and we're not real. We reach out to people and we sometimes pretend things are going great and that's what it sounds like, but the reality is it's anything but that. And if I can just, jump onto something that you opened with, Roy, that just really resonated with me. I do review, like with the different groups, I do review what is being written about, like in your um, journal or magazine is perhaps a better word, but like the one that you just shared with me that came from the police chiefs. It is absolutely, it, it parallels everything that is being talked about in the clinical literature. And so I think that the point of, of looking within the organization, looking within 
the informal leaders as well as the formal leaders to get help, I think is really huge. And, and because we, we know that your police psychologists, your people at the, the chiefs, they're being led by good research, good concepts. And with regard to the whole vulnerability thing, I think that it is so important there again that leaders are aware that people coming up under them, people within the groups, have a tendency to, to really emulate that same behavior and carry it forward. And I think if we're ever going to see a change, one of the positives, and we can't say very many, certainly not yet, but about this particular pandemic that we're dealing with is people are being forced to think of other ways to connect, other ways to be in touch, other ways to model behavior. And I think that because it is true that, and to pick up on what you said, Roy, when people are not allowed to be physically vulnerable because of the jobs you're in, it is difficult for people to then know easily how to go toward the other way and show the emotional vulnerability. And yet it's the unfinished parts of us in many cases that allow us to be more connected, that allow us to share more. And that's why in many cases, some people get a lot out of support groups because it, it's the sharing of the vulnerability. It's that somebody else has walked in my shoes, but maybe they're a little bit farther down the road than I am. And many survivors have told me when they attend support groups, even though they don't always go back, it gives them a benchmark. And, and so I think with regard to vulnerability, it is um, some of the best leaders I know, and certainly I'm thinking now of some of the military leaders I've had the privilege to, to interview. It's when they began to realize the need to show the soft side that they also began to get more healing from the experiences they were having than when they were in fact playing a role. I could have talked about that for about a half an hour, but I decided not to because we, we still have plenty of content to go. Yeah, maybe, maybe that'll be its whole own podcast. Um, we can definitely talk about that. That's really, really interesting. Sort of related to um, some of the vulnerability, uh, struggle with vulnerability. Some people are so good at hiding their pain when dealing with trauma that even their closest friends and family and coworkers um, can't see that they're in pain. So um, what are some concerning signs that loved ones and coworkers can can watch out for that, you know, may not be like a, a bright blinking sign saying that, you know, I'm in pain, but something that might be a little bit um, more subtle. Yeah, and I'm, I'm gonna let Carolyn go with this one after I say the, the big one for me is people being more disconnected than they normally are. And again, disconnection is a new newer concept. You were even more disconnected. It was easier before when I had normal routines and patterns to realize I've lost touch with, with so-and-so. Um, that's much harder, and, and I'm sure we'll share some strategies uh, shortly about how to stay more connected, but I would love to hear, uh, Carolyn, your, your background and perspective on that. You know, it, it is true that what you led with on that, Roy, and I'll just expand a little bit. It really is changing in that person's behavior. So for example, someone that is outward, someone that is 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 the first to, uh, reply yes to something social that's coming up, someone who then is not doing that. And so for a lot of this, 
what I think we're looking at as one another's peers is and leaders is we're looking to see what's different in their behavior. And, and there's no question then that things to do with, with, with alcohol, even food, food can be an indication too much, too little. Any, any kind of behavior like that um, that's different, um, having some, hearing someone talk negatively who normally is not bent that way, hearing someone that is only recounting what they've seen on social media that's negative, what they're seeing on television that's negative, um, when we start to see someone beginning to behave in a negative pattern, many times it is an indication um, of, of a spiral. You know, in the airline side of the world, um, we, one of the things that supervisors begin to look for among flight attendants, for example, it, male and female, is when their appearance really changes. And I don't know if that's true of cops, but it is an indication when someone has always had excellent hygiene and, and so forth, it, it's like when we start to see changes in that, it's like, wow, something must be really going on because the normal patterns for that person are changing and it's obvious. And so if it's bad enough that we can see it, how long did it take to get there? Also, a big indicator today is postings on social media. And, and a lot of times I've, I've been on the back end of where someone has ended their life by suicide, where in, on the back end, people will even show me a post or they'll recount to me a post. And looking back, it's like, that should have been a clue. Not that I would say that to them, but that's how the friend or many times the family member feels. And so there's just a lot to say for what is different about that person and then any indication that they are in a, a negative frame of mind that in fact can spiral down. Those are real key indicators. So if a loved one or maybe a fellow responder sees one or more of these signs, um, what can they do to help? Well, I think first thing is, is reach out and, and try to connect with that person. Uh, there's, you know, again, the new norm, whatever that's going to look like, that can be somewhat challenging. And, and I'll go back to what Carolyn said, right, is, is sometimes these changes can be subtle. Sometimes they can be dramatic. Sometimes we can see a social media post of someone and wonder, okay, so that post was out of character. Uh, but does it really mean something? So, so one of the things I, I think we could do is reach out to another peer, another colleague, uh, and say, hey, did you see that post? Or did you hear, have you talked to so-and-so? And, and what did you get from that? Because I also think that helps us build a, a support system for uh, venting our own you know, concerns and, and maybe help give us some courage uh, to intervene. Because I think frequently we just ignore what we see. Um, and again, in, in this strange world that we live in, and, and frankly, one tip that I will give uh, right now for everyone uh, that's listening, that's a responder, either uh, in the traditional sense or this new uh, definition is that we're all spending, frankly, most of us are spending far too much time on social media. Um, the, the comments and the commentary, and, and that's really dangerous for us, I think. I think we need to spend more time uh, in our own heads trying to figure out uh, what we believe and what's true and, and having conversations with friends and family and uh, not letting opinion in many cases have such a dramatic impact. It's hard. I mean, these social media companies make millions and millions of dollars on advertising to feed us information. But what we're going to see in the long term, and we've already seen it, it's really unhealthy uh, from a human perspective to constantly be fed information and opinion and 
uh, we have to figure out some ways to break those habits. And, you know, one of the things that's so true is when we are connected to information, whether it's someone's opinion or maybe maybe in, in some ways it is factual, if it holds us in an emotional space, that's not good for us anytime. Because as long as we are are, are choosing to remain an emotional pl- in an emotional place, we really can't access the higher mind. And the higher mind is what is going to ultimately pull us out of, of, of anything that's threatening or difficult. And so when I think of that, for example, we all know people that are positive. We all know people that will somehow try to help us find a silver lining. And I think when we catch ourselves in some kind of negative mindset, we really need to look for that. And we, we really do know that the whole concept of, of living alone versus being alone with the social distancing that we very much are experiencing now, I think that calls more than ever for fellows that work together, that people that um, share their lives to be able to look around and make sure, are they checking in regularly? Are we checking in regularly with other people? And I mentioned earlier, some of the work that we're doing now is, is we just sort of have our own list of how we're going about checking on people. And so what it is, is very much that person a few times leaving messages and then, then we go to the emergency contact. So I think even with family and friends, it's important to know if we're not hearing from someone, who else knows them? Who else could we check on? And particularly if you've had a suspicion that there is a, um, a problem there or the person has just lost a loved one. And as I mentioned with the Northeast now, that's what we're seeing a lot of, where we're concerned about people. I looked at a case yesterday of a woman that has two family members in ICU. And with COVID-19. And so very difficult uh, situation. So we're not going to let her out of our grasp, so to speak. We don't want to wind up having to make a 911 call for her. Um, and so it really, the whole idea of, of living alone, many people live alone by choice, but it doesn't mean they have to be alone. And thank goodness for FaceTime and Zoom, because we know that being able to look into someone's eyes, even if it is on a screen, seeing someone's facial expression, this is far better than just the voice on the phone. And I know I've, I've worked with some grandparents who've never actually used FaceTime before. They've never, but now when they're talking to those grandchildren, it's very important that they are learning to do this. And um, it's, it's really interesting. The, there are a lot of people, I mentioned cruise line employees that are isolated on ships. Many of them because of their salaries, they can't afford smartphones. So even though internet is open to them, they have no way to communicate with family and friends. And some of them, as I mentioned, they've been on there a while and will be. And so what we did in those situations to help them connect with family and friends, we made sure there were pen and pens and paper in rooms. And some people would take it for granted. There wasn't. And so really not taking anything for granted at a day and a time like this, making things available so that people can connect and we attempt to connect, but also look out, think outside the box for situations like that where people not only are isolated, they really don't have any way to communicate. Sure. Thank you. So having the support of loved ones is obviously, as we've discussed, 
incredibly important, but also having self-compassion is another important component to the coping process. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what self-compassion is and why it's so important? Yeah, I can't wait to hear Carolyn's response on this, but I'm going to start out by telling you that that traditional first responders are awful at self-compassion. Um, you know, a bunch of type A personalities that come into these uh, professions and uh, everything we look at is with a, a critical eye. And, and there are some reasons for that. These are, you know, major life-saving professions and, and we're picking people with a specific profile for a specific reason. Um, when I talk about self-compassion, I, I think about of the idea of, of being a coach or a mentor versus being a critic. And, and the commentary I always give is, if you're in a leadership position or if you're giving feedback to a family member, maybe a, a child, um, about something that they did that didn't go well, either they made a mistake, something went wrong, your attitude toward them and the language that you use is likely to be compassionate, an opportunity for growth. I wanna help you grow and learn from that experience. Yet when we make a mistake ourselves, what we see is we look in the mirror and we use language that we never would use with someone in the outside world. And then we try to hold ourselves accountable to, to being perfect. And I think for me, self-compassion is, is realizing that, listen, this, this event, this world that we're living in right now uh, is different. There are days where I probably do have one too many drinks. There are days when I'm definitely eating too much food um, and understanding that, that listen, I, I need to be aware of it. I need to acknowledge it, um, but I also need to forgive myself for it if I'm going to move forward and grow through it or from it, whatever those behaviors happen to be. I'll just pick up on that with the whole discussion, Roy, of guilt versus shame. And, and uh, Kristen Neff and Brene Brown, both University of Houston, really talk a lot about knowing the difference between guilt, which we consider adaptive, that means, Roy, if you feel bad because you had one more beer than you should have or bourbon or whatever your choice is, it means that you decide the next day how it's going to be for you. And so, so you had some guilt about it. So you made a decision. You did something about it. So, that, so that's what we mean when we say guilt is adaptive. What is a real problem, and certainly with first responders and people that are in the kinds of jobs, Roy, that you guys are in, there's so many days that I know a call doesn't go well, and there's such a tendency to feel guilty. But what we always want to help people with is not allowing that to become shame. Because when something becomes shame, the message then is, it's not simply that I did something or I made a mistake, that's guilt. No, shame is I'm a bad person. And that's when we can get into some really bad spirals that lead, unfortunately, to people deciding that life isn't for them. They're not worth living. It's not worth. So that's a, that's a key point is that when we are listening to a colleague, we're listening to a family member, we're listening to anyone, and we're also listening to ourselves, we have to recognize that we learn from our mistakes. We learn from things that we didn't get exactly right. And then we formulate an idea, and that's using the higher mind again, isn't it? But we come out of that emotion of guilt, which is what that is. We go into the higher mind that says, okay, that happened, this happened, this happened. I feel terrible about it, but here's what I'm going to do with it. Here's where I'm going with it next time. And so it's really important, I think, that we, we understand that that 
the distinction between self-compassion and, and, and having high self-esteem, there's a real difference because our high self-esteem would be there every time we have a good call or we get it right, everything goes well. But what about the day that you can't control the way it went and that's a bad call and now you're looking in your mind and now you're looking back and now you're thinking of what you wish you could change. So instead of it then going forward, unfortunately too many times, um, it, it, it goes the other way. And so self-esteem, boy, that's important. But realizing that we can't control those other events and those other things that happen, we can control our mind. But we have to get out of the emotion. We have to get out of the guilt into the higher mind to think about what we're going to do next. And so I think that self-compassion is something that there's so much research now about it. And it's such a growing field. And I do think that that, that is one of the resources. There are many, uh, there's a workbook out now that we can look at by Kristen Neff and uh, Christopher Germont, where people can just take actual pencil and paper and literally work through this kind of thinking process. So there's a lot out there to help us use the higher mind so that we really can give ourselves the same compassion, the same support. And like you said, Roy, use those same loving words that you would someone else. We need to be able to do that for ourselves. Thank you. So uh, earlier in the interview, we talked about normalizing uh, trauma in the responder profession and how important that is. And I think a big part of that is normalizing the emotions that one might feel as a result of trauma. So um, we talked a little bit about guilt just now, but um, what are some of the emotions that uh, a responder might feel as they cope with trauma? Sadly, the list is is really long, I think. I, I want to go back to something that Carolyn said earlier, though, right? The, one of the things we have to do is establish what, what each individual's norms are. And if I can put that into tactical terms, um, we speak in some of our classes about establishing baselines, right? Each community that's served by law enforcement, fire EMS, has a different profile and different things that are normal for responders to attend to, to respond to. Um, the reality is that's true of all of us as human beings as well. So what identifying what those baseline emotions are and then realizing that whatever is happening is causing someone to dip below that baseline. And I would also probably argue for how long they dip below that baseline. I think it's fair. Um, you know, I, I certainly have experienced anxiety and fear, uh, not despair. I think despair would be one that would really be a, a trigger for, hey, we need to, need to step up the level uh, of care for someone. Um, but I think that as we, again, we normalize the fact that it's okay to be human, it's okay to have emotions and feelings, that's when we figure out, because then that changes the baseline, right? As someone begins to learn that those uh, emotions are okay, we have to be there and understand that now the baseline is new, so there are new behaviors or emotions that should trigger us to say, oh, something, something's not up. Carolyn, I'm curious what your experience is in that space. You know, it's so true. And I mentioned the, the whole concept of post-traumatic growth earlier. That's how we keep growing. And thank goodness for all the research today on, on the plasticity of our brains. The fact that it's, unless literally there is something wrong with us physically, that as we age, we can still keep learning and we can still learn new behavior. And so I definitely think that what you're saying is true. Being able to own those emotions, I think that's one of the harder things for people that wear the uniforms that you guys wear. 
uh, because you're, our perception is when you come in, you are going to save our lives. You're going to get rid of the bad guys. You're going to take care of all that. But really, we should be reminded that there's also a heart in there and there's a right brain in addition to your logical left brain. And, and I think when people, it, it's really along the same lines of self-compassion, it's, it's being able for the responder to give themselves a break and, and to recognize that there's something very powerful about the whole, the whole being, not just simply the part that we signed on for, perhaps when we signed on for that particular job or that role. And, and I don't think there's any question that, as we said earlier, we are able to be closer to other people when people can feel the human part of us. And, and that's the part that helps us, but it helps others when, in fact, we share and, and we truly express what's going on inside. And I realize that people can't go about doing that on all the time. But in this space that we're speaking of now with the whole idea of resilience and, and dealing with COVID-19, going through all this, I think to be able to admit fear, to admit anxiety, and then to be able to talk about what we're going to do about it now and how much we're learning. And we don't know what we're going to learn ultimately, but we know we're learn we've learned a lot already. And if I could just add, Carolyn, I mean, I'm going to go back to my comment about social media, right, and, and the, the normalizing. Sometimes I think the, the challenge and the potential despair comes from when we look at people's social media posts. Um, it appears that everybody seems to be coping really well. I'm seeing pictures of, you know, greatly manicured new front lawns and new building projects and uh, lots of people cooking food and stuff. And, and I think we then try to compare ourselves and say, well, how come they're doing so good uh, and I'm not? So I, I think that's something, again, we just need to be really cautious of uh, as we, we figure out, you know, what this new normal is and normalizing these emotions. And you know, Roy, there's a lot of research right now on how harmful social media can be for people. And so I'm, I'm not down on social media. I'm not, I, I don't, I, when it first all started coming out, when Facebook was out, I was traveling so much internationally, I would be in situations where I barely had enough um, bandwidth to do my emails. So I didn't, I didn't get into it the way a lot of the folks coming behind me have. But I think there, there's no question that there is a, a kind of narcissism also that's now being associated with it. And so I, I'm not saying anything negative other than to say, I think that we have to engage our higher mind when we're looking at someone's Facebook page or when we're looking at posts, because too often that's a really different picture from what's going on. And I think for a lot of people, it just makes them feel worse when they look at others' posts and they look at others' pictures and, and I think that we, we really do need to monitor our own amount of time with it. And I think those that we influence with us, I think we need to do that as well. Because there is a positive side, like we're talking about here, but there is also that negative side. Thank you. So um, we've talked a little bit about some of the things that um, help people to cope. Can we expand a little bit more about some other strategies that um, these responders might use to, to cope in the midst of trauma? I think one of the things we need to do is, is figure out creative ways to stay connected to people. Carolyn made the, the point earlier how important connection is. And I know, again, I feel that 
uh, as well. And one of the, the most disturbing parts for me is I'm a, a relatively social person. Uh, I've spent uh, uh, the last couple of years a lot of time on the road for NCBRT connected to a lot of people. Um, and my emotion when, when the switch got flipped, and that's exactly how it felt to me. I was in an airport waiting to get an airplane and got a call saying, you're done, go back home, you're grounded. And I haven't been back out with my friends uh, since then. Um, and the first couple of weeks were, were really, really hard, uh, without question, just trying to establish, again, my own baseline and my own norms. One of the things that, that my friend group and our instructor group uh, at NCBRT has done that's been really successful that I've now seen expand is uh, we're, we're setting aside time a couple times a week for groups of us, smaller groups of us, to connect via Zoom. Uh, in one format, we're calling them fireside chats because back in the day on the road when we used to travel, we used to sit either by the pool or by the fireplace outside and, and catch up on the day and, and share stories about how life is going. And that piece of connection is so important that this ability now to use Zoom, and Carolyn said, to look in someone's face is absolutely vital. The other reason I think it's so important, besides the general connection piece, is if we're going to try and establish baselines and figure out when someone might be struggling, I think it's generally easier for someone to be uh, less than completely truthful on a voice phone call, because you're not seeing what else is going on around them. You're not seeing the emotion in their face. Um, I think the reality is we need to pay really close attention and find new ways to connect with people. And I think technology in this case is really good for us. And, and, and there's a lot of me that thinks that uh, millennials, uh, who some people like to, to pick on and, and criticize, will fare much better uh, as their outcomes emotionally. That's a guess. I have no data or research to support that. Um, but, but us older folks, um, we're a little slower to adapt to technology. And uh, that's reality. Now we're being forced to, which I think has lots of positive outcomes. The other thing that I will say is that we as individuals and in our friend and peer groups need to focus on the positives. There are so many negatives. I have, I have no doubt I could make a list. And that's usually from human nature, what we, the, the road we go down first. Um, in our friend groups in these Zoom fireside chats that we're having, we're intentionally facilitating conversations to focus on the positives because for every negative, there's probably a positive, maybe not one-to-one, -one, but there's a lot of good things that have come out of it. Uh, for me, there's a lot of things that when we begin to get back to whatever this new normal looks like, um, I'm not taking those, those behaviors and those habits back with me. Uh, I'm glad they're gone. Um, so I think we have an opportunity to really create some pretty significant change. And that's really, isn't it, what resilience is about. It's learning from that, which at the time in many cases can seem overwhelming, but taking with it, taking with us into the future that which empowers us, but we're also modeling for others. And I think that right along with everything that, that Roy has shared, some of what, when we were working with some of the cruise lines that have the employees that are not able at all to communicate with others, we, we talked to them also about the idea of writing not only letters, but also about their experience. Because thinking back over all the amazing pieces of literature that have been handed to us that people wrote during times like the Holocaust and other horrible times in people's lives, and, and how much wisdom and, and how much hope we have been able to glean from that. So we recommend it and, and we do for others, but being able to to write and to journal 
and journaling is huge for people that are grieving. There's some research that even indicates that being able to write about our feelings can be just as helpful in our healing as being able to speak with someone about them. And so I think particularly for psychological profiles for people, Roy, and you know who I'm talking about, sometimes don't, people don't like to talk about their feelings too much, and we get that. But what's interesting is that some people will, though, on the other hand, write better than they thought about their feelings. And even if it's never shared with anyone, it's just the idea that it is another way to concretize that which is emotional for us. And when we can do that, that's extremely helpful in many cases to being able to let it go. And, and so I think also affirmations. Christopher Farley kind of made fun of it lots of years ago. And actually, you may be too young to remember, but he, on Saturday Night Live, he, <laughs> he would look into a mirror and say things to himself. and We would all laugh, but oh, by the way, there's a lot to say for being able to use our conscious mind to talk to our unconscious or subconscious mind. And so to be able to, to visualize and write down how, what is going to be different for us, what we have learned, what it is that we want to see in the future when we are past this point where there's so many things we can't do. So continuing to put ourselves in a future frame of mind while still owning the discomfort, the feelings, sharing those, all of that's important. But Roy was alluding to something that we know so much more about today called negative bias. As human beings, because of the need to survive, we have a negative bias. And negative thoughts stick to us like Velcro, right? But what we have to do is we have to overcome that. And so positive programming with writing, with talking, with affirmations, and catching ourselves or somebody else when they're going toward that negative role, what we really know is that is that's about survival, and we can do more than survive. Human beings have been doing it for a really long time. So moving forward, um, what are some resources available to our listeners if they want to learn more about responder resilience? So not necessarily responder resilience, but for me, resilience in, in a general sense, there are three books that um, really changed my framework and my mind about what resilience looks like. One is a book uh, by the name, a guy by the name of Eric Greitens. Uh, Eric Greitens is a former Navy SEAL, uh, former governor of the state of Missouri, wrote a book called Resilience in which he shares stories letters back and forth with a former Navy SEAL teammate who was going through some really significant challenges. And you see kind of Eric help him uh, understand the growth aspects of these challenges that he had. Uh, the second book that I mentioned earlier is uh, Brene Brown's book, Dare to be Great, um, almost life-changing. It's so good and important for me that every year at the beginning of the year, I go back and I either read or listen to uh, the audio version of that book. And then the third one is a researcher by the name of uh, Angela Lee Duckworth. Um, Dr. Duckworth wrote a book called Grit. And uh, really her research focuses on the fact that life is a marathon. It's not a 5K. People who are ultimately most successful overcome challenge and setback and, and find themselves opportunities to grow and become better because of those setbacks. So I would point to those three books for the readers. Um, Angela Lee Duckworth and Brene Brown both have um, TED Talks, if our, our listeners aren't familiar with that, TED.com, you can look up Angelie Duckworth or Brene Brown. Brene Brown has the two uh, highest viewed TED Talks in history. Uh, interestingly, they're on shame. One's on shame, one's on vulnerability. 
Um, and the fact that so many people watch them and comment on them is, is I think, proof of how important this conversation is. So just a couple of mine, and I just want to, I want to validate, uh, not that Roy needs me to, but Brene Brown has just sort of turned the world um, on its upside down um, in terms of the whole embracing of vulnerability and the video, I mean, the audio, excuse me, uh, the power of vulnerability, which was one of her talks that she recorded with Sounds True. And Sounds True is a wonderful resource in general for self-help that's practical and applied. They, they publish a good bit of her material. So the power of vulnerability is our audios on this subject that are just so interesting to listen to. And I, I kind of like that sort of thing for exercising. I think you're kind of doing two things at one time when you're exercising and you're listening to something good. Um, and then I, I like to go back to some of the very old material. I recently reviewed a book that's been around for quite a while um, that was actually, for many years, people thought this book called Anyway was written by Mother Teresa because part of the poem about it was on her wall when she died. Actually, it was written by a young graduate student many years ago, but he talks about it, it's a, it, it has the message of hope but it's really about everything has a higher meaning anyway. It's very simple, simple examples. But I love it because like so many people, I so admire her work. And it was just interesting that I thought she wrote that. And then, and then I found out where it came from. Imagine what a validation it was for him to know that she died with it hanging on her wall, the main point. But some of the other ones too, um, and I'll be brief because I know that, that we could make a long list. But Rick Hansen is a psychologist that wrote a book called Resilient. And, and it is just so practical and so applied. He's such a highly regarded psychologist, but he writes in a way like Brene Brown, where anyone can read, anyone can understand. And, um, and the, the other one I mentioned earlier, Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer, they're really the two people I think of right now that are right out there with self-compassion. They have a, a, a workbook that is just so simple. It has a test on self-compassion um, that really sometimes gives us insight into we think we are, and then we take this test, like, well, maybe not so much. Uh, but it, those are two also very good resources, and, and we, we could mention more, but those are, are two, I think, that our folks that are listening to this would, would find really useful and very practical and very applied. Thank you. I want to check out all of those, and we'll, we'll make sure to put any titles and links to um, these things that y'all are mentioning in the, um, the description of the podcast, just for our listeners to know. So before we wrap up today, uh, is there anything else that maybe I didn't ask that is on your mind that you want to mention as we wrap up this episode? I would just remind all of our listeners that uh, each one of us uh, has an important part to play in the future. And uh, regardless of what you're going through, what you're feeling, know that uh, people care uh, there's help available for you, and uh, your life is worth living. And I think it, you know, if you need to reach out, reach out. But more importantly, as importantly, um, those of us who have connections who we're concerned about that we haven't been in touch with, we have an obligation to reach out to those people uh, and try to make sure they're okay to the best of our ability. I think we need to go out of our way to take that step. And I know for me, I make a list of five people every day going through my contacts and I text them and give them some space. But if I don't hear from them the next day, um, I'm either calling them or calling somebody else I know that might know them, uh, just trying to track down where they're at. And I would just encourage our listeners that um, 
there are better days ahead. Uh, and we just need to be able to focus that we have to get through these challenges. And as we said earlier, from a resilience standpoint, there's always going to be challenges. We have to come out the other side, as Carolyn said, post-traumatic growth and, and be better because of the challenges we face today. And I think that was really a great summary. I'll just add that it's so important to have two or three phone numbers in your phone that when you are in a position like we all can be where we really need someone to speak with. It has to be numbers of people that 2 a.m., 3 a.m., it doesn't matter. They see your number, they pick it up. Nobody's looking at the clock saying, why is she calling me at this time? They're, they see it's you, they pick it up. And by the same token, I think that we need to be very mindful of, of, of taking that call, even when it is inconvenient. So when it's reversed, I've had so many interviews over the years where someone didn't take a call and the next thing they knew, it, the person had died in a crash or something horrible had happened. And I realize that we all have to manage our time, but I do think that if it's someone we really care about, that we really feel connected to, and they're such a big part of our own emotional well-being, I think we need to pick up those phone calls. So I think that, that all of this is so important because there's no question that as human beings, we've been surviving for a lot of years and we'll survive now too, but we need each other and those emotional connections are lifelines. That's great. Both very good reminders. Um, thank you both so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, I think this, I've learned a lot in this conversation. I think this is going to be really, really um, an important one. Uh, for our listeners to hear. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Before we wrap up today, we want to emphasize that if you're struggling right now, please reach out and ask for help. Your life is so important and it's okay to ask for help. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. We want to thank Roy and Carolyn for spending some time with us today to talk about this important topic. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you again next week.